Let's remain standing and pray yet again, shall we? Well, Father, thank you for your great kindness and your love out of which you sent the Lord Jesus Christ to be our sin bearer. And thank you that he took the sin and darkness from us. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the shed blood of Christ. And thank you for that cleansing flood there, for the substitutionary death of our Lord Jesus Christ in which we can stand before you righteous. Father, thank you for our Bibles now and thank you for the great privilege of starting our week together assembled as your church here in this part of West Virginia, gathered together to hear your word, to listen, to apply it, to go out and do it in obedience. Would you encourage our hearts through the word of God today, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. And thank you, you may be seated. Um, I don't know if you are in the category of a movie buff, I am not. I don't know too much about movies, but I know when I watch a movie, the kind of movies that I like are these kinds. The kind of movie where there's just a normal, average guy minding his business, and then somebody enters his world in a destructive way, and he straps on his sword. The good guy. You know what I'm talking about? This guy's just like living his life, minding his business, doing his job, and then somebody kidnaps his kids or something or attacks his business, and they are evil, and he is good, and a normal, righteous guy arms up and goes out and solves the problem. Now, once in a while, there's like sci-fi movies like that. That's not me. I would rather like pull weeds than watch a sci-fi movie, but... If it's a cowboy or a cop or someone like that that's ready to go after it, that's good. You know the concept I'm talking about. I want you to have that in your mind today as we turn to Hebrews chapter 7 because there is an interesting story from our Bibles that the writer of Hebrews is going to use as an illustration with his audience today, and it is about a normal average guy who straps on his sword. We'll pick that story up later. We are crossing into Hebrews chapter 7 this morning, and it has been our practice in our series uh, to have one of our young people from the Bible quiz team from last year. They memorized the book of Hebrews last year. They are memorizing the Gospel of John this year, and some of them have been kind enough to retain some of the chapters so that we can continue with our Hebrews series, crossing into a new chapter, hearing it quoted by heart from one of our young people. And so I invite Kelly Martineau to our platform at this time. Please come, Kelly, and thank you for being willing to do this. Uh, Kelly, you are continuing to be on the quiz team this year, are you? Yeah, very good. And it's the Gospel of John. I was correct with that. Yeah, what chapter in John Step up closer to the microphone. What chapter in the Gospel of John are you at personally in your memory work so far? I am through chapter 5, verse 10. Very good. That's really commendable. And then this is all pointing towards next summer's youth convention where you'll compete in quizzing on the Gospel of John. Well, thank you for retaining Hebrews chapter 7. You're going to quote it in the New King James translation. Uh, Many of us are now using our ESV in the series. But um, please listen closely, have your Bible open, and let's hear God's word now. Kelly, thank you for quoting Hebrews chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, 
having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi, who receive the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people, according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them, received tithes from Abraham, and blessed him who had the promises. Now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them, of whom it is witness that he lives. Even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed, of necessity there is also a change of the law. For he of whom these things, these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no man has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. Priest like Melchizedek. Um, I have ESV. I'm sorry. It's okay. Katie, can you help her? She's on verse 15. And it is yet far more evident if, in the likeness of Melchizedek, there arises another priest who has come not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. For he testifies, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness, for the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. For he was not made, and inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, for they have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath, by him who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not relent, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Better covenant. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. Also, there are many priests, but they are because they are prevented by death from continuing. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily, as those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's, for this he did once for all when he offered up, up himself. For the law appoints as high priest men who have weakness, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the son who has been perfected forever. Amen. Kelly, thank you so much. For that. Well, I appreciate that, Kelly. Thank you so much. And um, keep in mind, that was last year's material, and so they had to refresh on it for today. And I really appreciate these young people being willing. I find it very encouraging to hear them recite God's Word like that. Well, we're in Hebrews chapter 7, and um, you need to know that um, we have some significant content that we're going to be dealing with. It occurred to me as I was preparing our sermon that the next four chapters, Hebrews 7, 8, 9, and 10, really in a lot of ways, it would be better if we were in a classroom where we had a marker board and PowerPoint, and you had tables and notes, and we could talk back and forth. But this is going to be in the form of, of a sermon from the pulpit. This is one-way communication, and I'll do my best to make this clear, but to help us with this extended exposition now that the, that the writer of Hebrews is going to launch into, chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10, it's going to be an extended exposition. It's like a, he's, he's moving through some material here, 
it's going to help us if we do just a couple things. And the first thing we need to do is we need to become much more Jewish in our thinking. Now, we've talked about that in the past, how Jewish the book of Hebrews is. And we're not very Jewish. We're very Western. We're very American. We don't think like someone who was raised up in Judaism. And so if you have your notes nearby, let's just remind ourselves of some key players in Judaism and in the Old Testament and some key concepts that the Hebrew believers, now they, I believe, had heard the gospel. They, many of them had been saved. They were following Christ, but they're becoming discouraged partly because of persecution, partly because of just their roots in Judaism and the difficulty of giving up the past and how they understood. And now someone comes to town and says, look, you need to follow this Christ. It's hard for them to get their minds wrapped around that because we don't understand how deeply embedded in them was their commitment, for example, number one, to Abraham. If you're a Jew and you're receiving the letter of Hebrews, and we don't know who wrote it, we really don't know who received it, we believe it was a small group of believers who were Jewish, hence the name the Hebrews. But all of the Jews raised in Judaism, there was no one more important or greater than Abraham. And you need to know that Abraham was like the greatest prophet that they had. He was the father of their nation. He was the one through whom God would bless Israel and through whom God would bless them. I mean, Abraham was just the greatest. Next in line would be Moses. I mean, think about Moses. He led the children of Israel out of Egypt. I mean, apart from Abraham, there was no one greater than Moses. And not only did he lead the children of Israel out of Egypt, but God gave Moses directly the law, and they loved the law. It was through the law that they were distinct from all pagan nations, and it was through the law that they knew they could obey and please God. That law was perfect and unchangeable in their minds. Abraham is the greatest. Moses is the one through whom God gave the law. And Moses' brother Aaron, letter C is Aaron, His, his sons, through his sons, the priests were anointed and appointed by God. Everyone needs a priest. If you're a Jew, you know that the only way you can get to God is to go through your priest. I mean, let's just think about the things that they're going to struggle with now in their minds. There they are. They've been rounded up into a Bible study. They're in someone's house church living room. And this pastor has come to town and and he's been teaching them about Christ. And And all of a sudden, he begins to teach them that there's someone greater than Abraham. There's someone who's greater than Moses. There's someone greater than the angels who delivered the law to Moses on Sinai. Their heads begin to explode. How can this be? And God begins to do a work in them, but then they're filled with doubt, and they don't know. And then then they say, this Christ, he he can be your priest. He's our high priest. Now, wait a minute. He doesn't qualify to be a priest. Only Aaron can be a priest. See, Aaron, the brother of Moses. So let's just think here real quick. Remember I was saying that it would be good to have a marker board and a whiteboard here? I guess I could have. Um, But you got Aaron and his, uh, uh, Moses and his brother Aaron, and and their father was Amram, and and then their father, um, let me think a minute here. I can't think of his name, but then his father was Levi. Their great-grandfather was Levi, the son of Jacob and Leah. Okay, And Levi was the one 
who did not get a portion of the land when it was divided among the 12 sons. Remember? And and that's what makes the 12 tribes of Israel. But Levi didn't get any land. Levi was given the assignment of being the father of the priestly line. And so his great-grandson is Aaron. So often when we're talking about this, and even the writer of Hebrews, he will reference Aaron. Sometimes they will reference Levi. You'll recall that the way the Levites, those who were of the priestly line, those who served the Lord in the tabernacle and later in the temple, that God, out of his instruction of the law of Moses, required that only the sons of Levi could be priests. And so his great-grandson was Aaron, and he was well-known because he was the brother of Moses, and it was in the wilderness that he performed these priestly tasks, and they're the ones who set up the tabernacle. The people had to pay a tithe. Tithe means a tenth. And the people paid a tithe, and that's what supported the Levites, or the sons of Levi, because they did not get a portion of the land. They did not receive a land inheritance like the other tribes. So this is very important material We're trying to think Jewish here. We're trying to wrap our mind around the reality of how important Abraham was to them, how important Moses was, how necessary Aaron was of the tribe of Levi, of the priestly line. And then we are very, very committed to to the covenants, letter D, God's covenant that he made with Abraham and that he made with Moses Why would anybody ever be interested in a new covenant? I mean, God made promises to Abraham that he would keep. He made promises to Moses that he would keep. It was the the line of blessing for God's people Israel. And then this guy comes to town having a Bible study in the living room, teaching him about Jesus, and that there's a new covenant. We don't need a new covenant. We have the old covenant. What's wrong with the old covenant? Why do we need a new covenant? I can't get my mind wrapped around that if I was raised in Judaism and I'm a Jew. I would venture to say that most of us didn't even think about Abraham, Moses, Aaron, the covenants this week at all. But they would have thought about it all the time. Very important to them. Not only that, if we're a Jew, foundational to our faith would be the reality of the tabernacle. It was instituted by God himself Through specific instruction to Moses, it was modeled after the heavenly tabernacle. The tabernacle then was the first place where God met with man and man could worship there. And that's why they needed a priest of the tribes of Aaron to represent them there. And only once a year the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies and there speak on behalf of the people to God and sins would be atoned. There was no other place to go if you're a Jew than to the tabernacle, later to the temple, modeled after the floor plan of the tabernacle, the outer court, the inner court, the holy place, the holy of holies. This is how we worship. This is where we meet God. There's no other way to get to God than through a priest at the temple. And furthermore, we understand uh, uh, sacrifices. Think about it. If I'm a Jew and I've raised in Judaism, then I completely understand that there is no relationship with God without blood sacrifices. And it is the blood of bulls and goats that I have watched ever since I was a little boy growing up. I have watched my father in a ceremonial prayer transfer the sin of himself and the family to this animal and then cut its throat and watch the blood spill because there is a universal spiritual law of God that is the wages of sin is death, period. And when there's sin, there has to be death and that was represented in the death of these animals we understand that 
And then somebody's coming along and they're saying, wait a minute, no more tabernacle, no more temple, no more sacrifices. There is this Messiah, Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate sacrifice. And once and for all, the sacrifices are done away with. But in my mind, there's no other way to have a relationship with God than through the blood of bulls and goats. And so this Christ, letter G, in Christ, all of the above, Abraham, Moses, Aaron, the covenants, the tabernacle, the sacrifices, and more. All of this, everything that we know, everything that we believe in, everything that we understand is essential to our relationship with God as a Jew, as an Israelite. All of these things are done away with in Christ or fulfilled in Christ And everything that has been passed down to us from Abraham is lost or dramatically changed in Christianity. This is a very, very difficult concept for us to accept. I mean, can you feel just a little bit of what it must have been like for these Hebrews to receive this instruction? Just think how difficult it was. Now, you're telling me there's someone greater than Abraham? That makes them want their heads to explode. How can that be? And so you need to understand now with this Jewish foundation that we have to think Jewishly. We have to think Jewishly. That's how we're going to think. It's an adverb. We have to think Jewishly, okay? And so you got to just get this in your mind that this teaching is hard to embed. And even if we've taken the first steps towards following Christ and we've accepted Christ, that we're, we're, we're tended, our tendency is to fall away and revert back. And the writer of Hebrews is begging them, do not do that. Stick with Christ. The supremacy of Christ is what it's all about. He's greater. So you need to know then as we move on that the writer now is going to go into a detailed exposition for four chapters. It's going to be detailed teaching. It's all embedded in a Jewish thought line. In chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10, he is going to show them with detailed exposition why Jesus Christ is supreme and greater than all of these things under which they have grown. And so you need to know in chapter 7, which is what we're going to begin today, we're only going to get through the first 10 verses, that Christ in chapter 7 is the priest of a higher order or position than Aaron. And so the Jewish mind is exploding. How can Christ be our high priest? How can Christ function as my priest when he doesn't qualify because he's not from Levi through Aaron? The guy just doesn't qualify. And that's what chapter 7 is going to be about. And he's going to use this historical story about this good guy who went and captured some bad guys and what happened to him one day in a valley. And he's going to use that as a historical point of reference to prove to them that Christ is greater than Abraham. It's very interesting. Chapter 8, when we get there, is going to be how Christ is the priest of a greater new covenant. Remember what I just said? What's wrong with the old covenant? Why do I need a new covenant? He's going to explain that in chapter 8. In chapter 9, Christ is going to be presented as the priest in a better and greater sanctuary. You're kidding me. What's wrong with the temple? We love the temple. It's a great sanctuary. We don't know. Your body is now the temple of the Holy Spirit. 
There is a new sanctuary without walls. What does that mean? And in chapter 10, he's going to spend significant time arguing or convincing them that Jesus Christ is the priest who offers a superior sacrifice. And that the sacrifices in the blood of bulls and goats will never save them. The blood of bulls and goats is an inadequate sacrifice. Their heads want to explode, as I've been saying. They can't get their minds wrapped around this. And in Christ, all of this is taken care of and fulfilled. And so we're beginning chapter 7, and immediately he begins to talk about this strange character, Melchizedek. I would suggest that if you've ever read your Bible through before and you've run into Melchizedek, and it's not very often because we have, Roman numeral 3 in our notes, limited information about Melchizedek, that if you've ever run into his name, that you kind of blow through it. You're not sure exactly how to pronounce it. I'm not either, so I say Melchizedek. I see the quizzer cell. Uh, how do you say it? Mel- Melchizedek. Did Pastor Mark teach you that? It's probably right. But... Um, I grew up saying Melchizedek, and I'm from Illinois. That's the way we say it in Michigan and Illinois, all right? Melchizedek, all right? And, um, and, and so we don't have much information about him. And so the writer immediately, though, introduces this subject. But here again, you need to understand the audience that received the letter. They would have recognized his name. They would have understand the story that he's referencing. So here it is, this Melchizedek being introduced in Hebrews chapter 7, and let's read the first three verses again. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, Melchizedek is, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling, that's a key word, he resembles the Son of God. He continues, this Melchizedek does, as a priest forever. We do have limited information, as we're saying, about Melchizedek, but we have heard his name already in Hebrews, haven't we? Let's just remind ourselves the flow of the writer here. Our eyes go back to chapter 5, verse 9, and he's already talking in chapter 3, chapter 4, and chapter 5 how Christ is greater than the prophets, he's greater than angels, he's greater than Moses, and he's our high priest. He's introduced this concept. Well, they really struggle with that. The reason the Jewish audience struggled with Christ being able to be our priest is because he did not descend out of the lineage of Levi through Aaron. Lineage to a Jew is everything. And they knew it, and it was very important. And they knew that Christ was from the tribe of, say it, Judah, not Levi, Judah. And Judah's people were not the priests. So he's talking in chapter 5, And he knows he has to convince his audience that that Jesus Christ, as a priest, is the real deal and that he's qualified to be our high priest. And so he's been teaching that. And he's already quoted from the psalm in verse 6 where he says, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. There we've seen it. 
And then he goes on and he's talking about Jesus, verse 7 of chapter 5. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications. Chapter, verse 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience. Verse 9, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. This Jesus Christ he's teaching them about. Being designated by God. So he was appointed by God. That's a clue right there. He didn't have to come from a lineage. He was directly appointed by God to be this high priest. A high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And remember at this point, the writer then says, verse 11 of chapter 5, and about this, Jesus Christ functioning as our high priest after the order of Melchizedek and all of the ramifications of that for our salvation... And about this, we have, meaning I have, the writer says, we have, identifying himself with his audience, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain. And then his mind begins to whirl, the writer does. And he said, but you have become dull of hearing. And we've really emphasized this section, and you know that. And that began a turn in the writer's sequence here, And he gets off on this tangent, tangent, calling them out from being babies on the milk of the word, learning their ABCs, and being dull of hearing when they should be chowing down the meat of the word, and they should be ready for these things, and they should be able to be teachers, not just learners and students. And it all started right there when he was talking about Christ being the high priest of the order of Melchizedek, and about these things I have much to say. Then he gets off into the warning section. Don't fall away. If you fall away, it's a terrible thing. And there's all kinds of problems with that, and we've been emphasizing that and trying to make sense of this difficult warning passage in chapter 6. And then we get through the warning passage, and then he begins to encourage them, verse 13 of chapter 6. And and he thinks that there's... uh, Actually, verse 9, we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, and he begins to encourage them. And he gets down to verse 19 of chapter 6, let your eyes go there, and he says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, talking about the Holy of Holies, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner. Remember, he took the anchor and he sunk it in there for us so that we have an anchor for the soul. Where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, verse 20, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And now he can't help himself, the writer can't, and he's going to teach him all that hard stuff that he said they weren't ready for just a minute ago. You follow me? And so he wants to explain to them why it matters that Christ is a priest of the order of Melchizedek. And most of us can't even pronounce the name, don't even care about it, but we need to know. So let's reread now chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. This Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter. The king's blessed, and, and, they, and he blessed him. Melchizedek blessed Abraham, verse 2. And to him Abraham tithed. And then by translation of his name, we've already read this. He's king of righteousness. He's also king of Salem. That's an old word, an old title for the city of Jerusalem. That is, he's the king of peace. 
and he's without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God. He continues as a priest forever. So the writer of Hebrews now, with this limited information that we have on Melchizedek, is going to use a story that happened 2,000 years before in the life of Abraham that his audience, these Jews, would have well understood exactly what happened. And for us to take in that story, we have to go to Genesis chapter 14. It won't take us long. It's a short story, and you'll be able to easily understand it. But in Genesis chapter 14, historically, we meet for the very first time this interesting and mysterious Melchizedek. What you have here is the story of Abram or Abraham rescuing his brother's boy, Lot, Abraham's nephew. He's rescuing him from being in captivity. So what what happened was there was a a union of four city-states, and there are four kings. Of them is the king of Sodom. You've heard of Sodom? And the other city is Gomorrah. They were wicked cities. Abram's nephew, Lot, very foolishly did what? He pitched his tent first towards Sodom. The next thing you know, he's living in Sodom. The next thing you know, he's sitting at the gates of Sodom. And these four kings that had this uh, union, this treaty, was including Sodom and Gomorrah, these city-states and their kings, and that's where Abram's nephew Lot lived. Abram's brother, Lot's father, had died, and Abram was responsible uh, to, and a duty to his brother to watch over his nephew Lot. Lot's a grown man by now. He's got adult young children, adult girls. That's part of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, and we're not going to get into that right now. It's very, very interesting. But there is a union of five kings who kind of ruled the area. Their names are very hard to, uh, to pronounce, starting with verse 8 of chapter 14, so we'll not even give it a whirl. Uh, the, the chief among them is this guy, Cordelamor. It's really hard to pronounce. I, I, I actually listen to it over and over and practice it, but I'm not even close. It's that C-H-E-D-O-R-L-A-O-M-E-R, Cordelamor, something like that. These five kings come against the four kings, and here's what happens. Okay, They come through, they swoop through, including Sodom and Gomorrah. And let's pick it up at verse 10 because I really like the detail. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I think it's fascinating what the writer included here. Now, the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen. Bitumen was tar pits, B-I-T-U-M-E-N in the ESV. They were tar pits. It's a a petroleum product that bubbled out of the ground. It was sticky, tar, like some kind of asphalt. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, so these five kings come against the four kings, and everybody's running. Notice it says some fell into them, the tar pits, and the rest fled to the hill country. Verse 11, so the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and he went their way. 
Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner. See, they, they cared about who they were related to. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, verse 14 of chapter 14 of Genesis, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and he went in pursuit as far as Dan, and he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and he defeated them, and he pursued them to Hobath, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. And nephew Lot is one lucky guy to have Uncle Abram. Well, they return. The kings meet them in the valley and they are interrupted, verse 18, by another king of Salem and his name is Melchizedek. And here's our first historical reference to him, verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high and he blessed him, Abraham, and he said, blessed be Abram by God most high, El Elyon, the same God that Abraham worshiped, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, he says it again, who has delivered your enemies into your hand, and Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So here's the picture, and here's what the Hebrew believers would have understood historically. They knew this story. They knew all about Father Abraham, and, and there were very few moments that pleased them more than when this righteous Abram, minding his own business about his ranch, gets a word in that his nephew's been kidnapped by these kings swooping down on him. He whistles his special whistle, and 318 of his trained servants the first Israeli commando group mounts up on their camels and off they go. And in the dead of night, they divide their forces, 318 commandos. And in the dead of night, they swoop in, they defeat the kings, they annihilate them, they gather all their stuff, they gather Lot and all the people and all the families that were kidnapped and all the women and children, and they bring them back. And Abram, can't you see him? This is a great moment. The plan worked. His men were flawless in their execution. They were mighty because why? Because a righteous man was fighting for his family. And woe unto the bad guy who has a righteous man fighting for his family. And Abram's got blood dripping off his sword and his coat's torn and his hair's blown in the wind and he's on this big camel and and he's just like, we did it, boys, we got him. And all of a sudden there's this strange guy comes walking out. Abraham stops his camel, he gets down, and it's Melchizedek. And here at the pinnacle of his moment of success, Abraham gets on his hands and his knees, and he bows before Melchizedek. He pays him a tenth of all of the spoils, and Melchizedek transfers a blessing of prayer onto Abraham. And all of the Hebrew believers knew exactly what this story was, and we're back On our way back, we have to stop in one more Old Testament passage, and we have to go to Psalm 110, verse 4. So there it is, limited information of Melchizedek. You need to listen closely. We can cover our territory, and we can make good understanding of this passage as we head into chapter 7. But on the way back from Genesis 14, where we first met Melchizedek, we now stop at Psalm 104, excuse me, Psalm 110 and verse 4. And let's just interrupt David here, who under the inspiration of the Spirit, 1,000 years later from when Abraham met Melchizedek, 1,000 years later, 
David is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and it's a messianic psalm. He's prophesying about a king priest that God promises to raise up in the future. Here it is. And the Lord has sworn, verse 4, and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, I know I'm not proving to you that that's messianic and that he's prophesying, but trust me, when you study it, that's exactly what he's doing. He's talking about a statement that God is making through David that he is going to have a new plan. He's going to have a new priest, a new king, and he's going to be a priest and a king forever, and he's going to be a priest of the order of Melchizedek. Why is he a priest of the order of Melchizedek? Think about it. When Abraham met Melchizedek in the valley after the slaughter of the kings, where was Abraham? Well, Abraham was right there, right? When he met him, all right? But Aaron and Levi and the line and Moses and the law had not been established yet, all right? So Melchizedek was not out of Abraham. He was not out of the line of Levi and Aaron. So here's a priest that is significant, that is credible, that Abram tithes to and who blesses Abram. And, and David says it will be a priest like that out of the order of Melchizedek as opposed to out of Levi and Aaron. And so David, let me just read the notes. David prophesied that God would bring into history someone who would be a priest like Melchizedek. Similarly to Melchizedek, he would be both priest and king. And his priesthood would last forever. And like Melchizedek, he would be appointed directly to God. Now let's go back to Hebrews chapter 7. And let's notice that in the first three verses, the writer now is going to try to convince his readers that Melchizedek is a resemblance of Jesus. He's a foreshadowing of Jesus. Now, I personally believe that Melchizedek was a real guy. He was a real king. But when it says he had no genealogy, he had no beginning, he had no end, it meant, and thinking in the book of Genesis how important genealogies are, what it meant was that in the course of history, there was no record of this guy. He really lived. He was a real guy. He really was born. He didn't live forever. But because there was no genealogical record of him, nobody knew from whose family he came. No one knew who his father was. No one knew who his children were. So it's like out of nowhere was this king priest of Salem. And then when he died, it's like nobody knew what happened after that. And so in their minds, it was like a forever king. He came out of nowhere, he left, and we don't know, you know, it wasn't. And so I think they're talking about a real guy, not like a Christophany or a Theophany or an angel of the Lord disguised as Melchizedek. I think it was a real guy that Abraham encountered. And, but this is how they spoke about him. So when we're back at Hebrews 7, and it'll only take us a few minutes to see the argument that the reader is making In the first three verses, he is now going to compare Melchizedek with Jesus Christ, is what he's setting up. He's setting this up. Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God. So he was a king and a priest. Jesus was a king and a priest. He goes on, after returning from the slaughter of the kings, he blessed him, and Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything, all right? So he was earlier on that, and he says, he was by translation of his name, 
king of righteousness. So Melchizedek, Melchi, is righteousness. Adek is the peace part of his name. That's what he says. So when you translate his name, Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Then he also is king of Salem, of that city, which is peace. All right? And so he was a king and priest. Jesus was a king and priest. He was a king of righteousness, verse 2. The writer of Hebrews is going to show them how Jesus is a king of righteousness. He's a king of peace. He was the king of Salem. Salem means shalom, peace. Jesus is our prince of peace. He was named that as his, at his birth. And he goes on to say then, verse 3, He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling, he was a foreshadowing of, he represented what Jesus would be like, the Son of God, and he continues as a priest forever. There was no record of an end to him. And we know that Jesus is the eternal Son of God, number four in comparison. And the writer of Hebrews is going to prove this. I want you to see that like Melchizedek, that's like Jesus. He was a king and a priest. He was a king of righteousness. He was a prince of peace, and he's the eternal Son of God. To do this now, in verses 4 through 10, he needs to prove to them that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. Okay, stop a minute and think. If he can prove to his Hebrew writers that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham and that Christ is of the order of Melchizedek, what does that mean about Christ? He's greater than Abraham. That makes their heads explode to think of Christ being greater than Abraham. And so he's walking them through a logic to show them, look, he's of the order of Melchizedek. And look what Abraham did to Melchizedek. Look what it says in verse 4. See how great this man was, Melchizedek, to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of his spoils. And those descendants of Levi, you know all about the descendants of Levi, who through Aaron and the priestly office have a commandment in the law of Moses to take tithes from the people. It's required. It's, it's of the law. And they are their brothers and sisters. And through these also are descended all of you from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham. Let's just stop right there. The first argument he wants to make in proving that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham is that Abraham paid him tithes. And the law wasn't written yet. Moses wasn't around yet. Okay? And, and it wasn't written yet. And so this Melchizedek, Abraham was so impressed with him and understood him to be a legitimate priest of the Most High God, and he immediately tithed the spoils of war to him and gave him a tenth, acknowledging him as his priest. Priests are who receive the tithes. So Abraham bows, gives tithes, acknowledging him that he's his priest. Furthermore, at the middle of verse 6, look what it says. This man who does not have his descent from from them, Levi or Aaron, received tithes from Abraham and he blessed him who had the promises. So not only did he receive tithes from him, but secondly, he blessed Abraham. And he goes on to show his argument to the recipients in verse 7. And it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. It is beyond dispute. Katie and um, Kelly, what was it in the King James Bible in verse 7? Are you with me here at all? Where it was beyond dispute, it was 
beyond all contradiction, the New King James says. It's beyond all contradiction. Thank you, girls. And it is beyond dispute, what? That the inferior is blessed by the superior. And so Abraham, is, is Abraham the superior here or is he the inferior? He's the inferior because Melchizedek blessed him. Let's read on. In verse 8, he says, In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. That's referencing Melchizedek. One might, verse 9, even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. And so... Three ways that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. Number one, Melchizedek received tithes from Abraham. He was his worthy priest. Number two, Melchizedek reaches out and prays blessing over Abraham. And the one who blesses is superior to the one who receives the blessing. And number three, it was as though when he blessed Abraham, Melchizedek did, Levi was still tucked in his great-grandfather's loins there, and it was as though he received these tithes from Levi as well, and that Levi receives a blessing in a representative way. There's a lot of spiritual lessons here, and we don't have time for them. We'll pick them up later maybe. But there's a logic here that he's following. So logically, if Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, and the writer of Hebrews has just most effectively proven that Abraham is greater than Melchizedek, that if Melchizedek, excuse me, that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, and if he proves that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, and that Levi was in Abraham in seed form at that time, then Melchizedek is greater than the priests of Levi. You got that? Melchizedek's greater than Abraham. Levi's still tucked nice and warm inside his father Abraham. And he's not even born yet. And so he's greater than him too. And so Melchizedek is a priest outside of Levi and Aaron. And so is Jesus Christ. And all of a sudden my Jewish mind clicks and I can get that. He was appointed by God. He doesn't have a genealogy. He's without beginning and he's without end. And he's a priest of and he's a priest of righteousness, and he's a king of peace. And now you're talking about my Lord Jesus. And that's who we follow. And he's greater than angels, he's greater than Moses, he's greater than Abraham, he's greater than the law, and he is absolutely worthy to be my high priest. Amen and amen. See what I mean? It's like detailed explanation, and you can't be dull of hearing to get this. And I was going to talk to you about Melchizedek, but you're still sucking on bottles Well, let me tell you, we're in this thing together, and the next four chapters is going to keep doing this. And he's going to prove that Jesus can be a worthy priest, and he's going to prove that there's a new covenant that's better than the old covenant, and he's going to prove that there's a new and better sanctuary compared to the old temple and tabernacle, and he's going to to prove that the blood of bulls and goats will get you nowhere in the presence of a holy God, and there is a superior sacrifice. And it is the ultimate sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. And all the church should stand and praise God from whom all blessings flow. So praise God for Jesus Christ, our righteousness. We who had no righteousness of our own, 
we who were lost in the desert of sin, we who were in the darkness of sin, through the righteousness of Christ that comes only through the cleansing blood at the cross, having it imputed on our behalf through Jesus Christ. He takes our sin and he cleanses us from our sin at the cross. He gives us his righteousness and we now have a righteous standing where we can stand in the presence of a holy God because of our righteous king. And he's our prince of peace. He's our prince of peace. Sin disrupts, sin destroys, and the Lord Jesus, our King of kings, our Lord of lords, and our Prince of peace comes into our lives, and he gives us the peace that passes all understanding when we keep our hearts and minds stayed on him. And all of our sin is gone, and I'm no longer accountable for it because of my King of righteousness, and I have peace from my high priest, king, priest. The peace from the, pri- the, peace from the priest. So do you willingly bow down to this priest king why wouldn't you the Hebrews were struggling to get their minds wrapped around this and so he had to use this convincing argument we have a greater high priest but he's not from Levi and Aaron no he's of the order of Melchizedek without beginning and end he's a king of righteousness and he's a king of peace and he's our high priest make him your Lord and your Savior today It's our only hope. Let's stand and close in prayer. Thank you for your patience. Father, thank you for this uh, incredible passage of Scripture that we've been wrestling with and we've been wading through. And like the Hebrew believers, we're a little bit hard to hear it. And we're trying to get our minds wrapped around it. But Father, we recognize that we are the recipients of the new covenant that is superior to the old covenant. And we are... Uh, those who have immediate access into your presence in the Holy of Holies because there our high priest, the Lord Jesus, sits and there he has set our anchor, the anchor of our soul as a forerunner right in the Holy of Holies where he's seated at your right hand with his ultimate sacrificial work completed. Thank you for these truths. Embed them in us. Sink them into our hearts. Grow your church and our understanding of our salvation through these things, I pray. And bless us as we go. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you and keep you. Please stack the chairs before you go. Thank you.